You ready to study the word? All right, turn in your Bibles, uh, if you have them, to Jeremiah 32. Put a marker there. Uh, It's in the Old Testament. And then turn on over to John uh, chapter 14. We're going to read a verse from chapters 14, 15, and 16. So Jeremiah 32, and then over to John. So Old Testament, New Testament. I'll give you a second to find that. While you're turning there, uh, we're going to begin a new series today that I'm calling The Greater Work. And uh, the idea for this series came out of, uh, I do a daily devotional. Uh, part of my regiment is uh, with Oswald Chambers, My Utmost First House. I don't know, anybody familiar with My Utmost Well, good. You should be because it's a, it's a wonderful anointed work. And I've done that for years. One of the quotes that Oswald Chambers has uh, in his writings is, uh, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Isn't that a good statement? And so that was the uh, the foundation, that idea for this, calling this series, The Greater Work. It's going to be a series on prayer. And I, have, I felt led to uh, lead us into a, um, into a time of prayer this new year. And one of the things that I'm going to be asking you to do uh, on January the 28th, which is our Vision Sunday, uh, I'm going to ask you to commit. I'm going and telling you in advance so you can prepare uh, for us to go into a church-wide fast, prayer and fast for the 29 days of February. So I, I want you to go ahead and be thinking about that. We will, um, and then we would we'd start that uh, the first of February uh, together, and then um, and then we would have guides, fasting guides, prayer guides for you. Uh, to help, and we'd just journey together. We'd have some specific things that we'd be praying about as a church, and then, of course, you pray on your heart. But listen, uh, the Bible doesn't say if you fast and pray. It says when you fast and pray. And fasting and prayer is a tremendous and powerful way to turn our attention off of ourselves and onto a holy God that can do something about things that we cannot do anything about. And so I believe as we, if we concentrate and pull together as a church family and turn our attention in unity and focus, seeking the face of God through prayer and fasting for 29 days, I know my God will answer. I know he will. Do you believe he will? Okay. So uh, then, so on January the 28th, I'm going to be asking you during the invitation time, For those of you who feel feel led and called to be a part of that 29 days of fasting for February, I'm going to ask you to make that commitment. And uh, we'll we'll give that to the Lord at the altar on that uh, day. Okay, Uh, the title of this message today is Why Pray? Why Pray? Here's what I want to do. I want to give you three reasons why I think we don't pray. Now, there are more. In fact, I've talked to some of you this morning, and y'all kind of gave me a couple more ideas about why we don't pray. But I want to give you three reasons why I think we don't pray. And then I want to give you two reasons why we ought pray, what should make us uh, pray. So, um, and those are going to be my points today. Um, Now, John 14 through 16, we're we're about to read. Most theologians believe that is a continual conversation that happened between Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper in the upper room. And uh, so that kind of gives you a little context about what we're gonna uh, we're gonna read. And he says things in these chapters in John in fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. He says a phrase 
to his disciples that's, that is not in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, it's not in any of the other gospels. So uh, we're going to point it, and it's, and it's uh, a promise that he makes. I'm going to ask if you would stand in the honor of reading God's word. We're going to pray, and then we'll jump off into reading starting in John 14. Let's pray together. Father, uh, thank you for the privilege of studying your word, and we declare that we need you now, God. Come be with us. Do you remove any distractions? Anything that the enemy has meant for evil? Would you intercept it right now? I bind the strong man in the name of Jesus. And I come humbly before you, God, and in front of your people to deliver a word from you that has convicted my heart. And God, may it do a work among us today. Holy Spirit, guide us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, John 14, we're going to start in verse 13, and I'm going to read two verses, and then we're going to flip over to 15, and then we're going to flip over to 16. Are y'all ready to journey with me? Here we go. John 14, 13 says this, you can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it, so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. John 15, 16. You didn't choose me. I chose you. Wow. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask using my name. All right. Now flip over to John 16, verse 23 and 24. John 16, verse 23. At that time, you won't need to ask me for anything. And he's talking about me personally. When I go away, you won't need to ask me for anything. I tell you the truth, you will ask the Father directly, and he will grant your request because you use my name. You haven't done this before, asking using my name, and you will receive, and you will have abundant joy in this. You'll have abundant joy in doing this. God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. Now, this was completely brand new information for these disciples. They had never heard such a thing before. In their old practice, they, they did not have the direct access. So this was completely new. But here it is in, these, in every passage. Did you hear this continual phrase? Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. And then in chapter 15, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give to you. And then in 16, uh, and then the same thing, and he says, and whatever you ask the Father, I'm going to give to you. See, this is powerful information. Now, let me ask you a question. Is this phrase for us today? Yes. If you ask anything in my name, I will give it. So why in the world would we not take Jesus up on his promise? Why wouldn't we do that? See, that's the question. 
And I want to give you three reasons why I don't think we do. And then I want to give you two reasons why we should. Really quick, here are three reasons uh, that we don't pray. Number one, I believe complacency. Now, complacency is equivalent to laziness. And uh, sometimes we can think, well, uh, we can get complacent in our prayers if they we don't see readily how they uh, affect us, how, how the situation affects us. We can get lazy in our prayer. Um, so we just get snug in our own little world and we're like, oh, I don't know. You know, I don't think I'm going to pray. But if we believe that prayer is the greater work of the believer, then we can't get placent complacent or lazy in our prayer. Um, somebody, uh, I was, we were talking about this this morning. Somebody uh, brought the, uh, it was a good, um, two others is one out of guilt. We don't pray sometimes out of guilt. I think it's, she said that. And, uh, that we, we feel guilty about praying. And then, uh, someone else said, well, we just don't, we don't feel like our, our needs big enough. There's gotta be something big for us to pray. Have you ever felt that? You're like, well, I'm just not going to take this thing. I'm not going to take this thing. Bother the Lord. I'm just not going to bother him. And we can get complacent. The second thing that I think that keeps us from praying is unbelief. Is unbelief. See, if we really believed that spending time in prayer for our business would change things, if you really believe that, I wonder if you'd spend more time in prayer over your business. If you really believed that prayer could change your marriage. I wonder if you'd spend more time in prayer, if we really believed it. See, I think we'll say we believe it. I think we give lip service to this idea. But do we really believe it? Do we believe it? I hate to say this, but I think some of us think that 10 minutes surfing on Google about our problems is more productive than 10 minutes praying about our problems. We'll go look that up. I'll find a solution. I'll see what other people have said or done about this issue. If I did a survey and I asked you, if I asked every one of you, do you believe in the power of prayer? Everyone in this room would most likely say what? Of course you would. That's the Christian thing to do. It's Southern. Yes, we believe in prayer. But is that really true or do we just say it's true? Daniel Henderson said it this way. Prayer is the most often talked about, but the least practiced discipline in the Christian life. Here's the third reason why I don't think we pray is discouragement. Have you ever prayed and prayed and prayed about something and it seemingly did not get an answer? And then the enemy, who has no new tricks, by the way, has come to you and he says, see, prayer doesn't work. Why bother? Why, why bother? And then we believe that and then we get discouraged instead of trusting God and we stop praying. I've been guilty about that. I've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And then either A, didn't get the answer I wanted or didn't feel like, felt like I didn't get an answer at all. And then Amy says, just stop. Just stop. Complacency, unbelief, discouragement, guilt, 
insignificance, any of those things are, are reasons the enemy will use to keep us from praying. Now, I want to give you two reasons why we should pray. And these reasons are actually attributes of God. They're actually attributes uh, for reasons that we should pray. Now, attributes of God are characteristics of who God is. It's just, I'm, it's, it's just who he is. Now, when you know someone's character, follow me for just a minute. When you know someone's character, when you know who someone is, you can get an understanding of uh, truth versus a lie about that person if you hear it. You can get comfortable in knowing what that would person would do even if they don't tell you what they do. Does that make sense? See, if someone knows my character, then I don't even have to explain my actions sometimes. You see, my character acts as a framework for people's understanding and interpretation. Let me give you an example. Say that I texted you something, just random something, and you read it, and, and it was possible that the text could have been taken offensively. You'd be like, what? What's Daniel saying? All right. Um, but you read it and you go, now, wait a minute, because you know my character and you go, now, wait a minute. I know Daniel really well. And I know Daniel wouldn't kind of snap back on purpose because that's not his character. You see what I'm saying? So see how, see how the framework of character can determine how you view and respond to someone. So you can easily assign the best intention because you know the character. See, that's the same way it is with our relationship with the Lord. When we know his character, when we know his attributes, it sets a framework for how we understand and respond to him. That's how we can be in the waiting. We're waiting for an answer. We can be in the not knowing Lord, I don't know what you're doing right now. I see what you're, I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand what you're saying to me. That's how we can be in the, in the waiting, the not knowing and the not understanding and stay steady in our faith. If we know the character of God and know how to respond accordingly. Now, Satan is always trying to get us to doubt God's character. He's constantly trying to discredit and to disprove God's character. He's done it since the beginning in the garden with Adam and Eve. And here's what he'll say. He'll say, well, if God were a loving God, he would have never allowed you to go through that. You ever heard the enemy say that to you? If God were a just God, that person that did wrong to you wouldn't have gotten away with it. See how that works? So there are two attributes of God that if we don't know them or if we misunderstand them, it could actually cause us to pray less. But if we understand them, if we understand his character on these things, it should make us pray more. Here, And I'm going to give you both of them, what both of them are, and then we're going to dive into them. All right, so this is going to be some teaching. Are you all ready to, to dig in a little bit? Okay, so buckle up. The two things, the two attributes are the sovereignty of God should cause us to pray more and the immutability of God, immutability of God. 
The sovereignty of God should cause us to pray more and the immutability of God. Those are two different characteristics. Now, here's number one. We're gonna dive into the sovereignty of God. Now, let me tell you what sovereignty means uh, because we think we know what it means, but often we don't know what it means. Sovereignty means simply supremacy. That's what it means, supremacy. Sov, if you break the word down, sov means supreme, reign means to reign. Okay, so a sovereign reign. Then, so God is the supreme ruler of everything. That's what sovereignty means. Now, here's what we think sometimes. We'll think, well, God is sovereign, so God is gonna do what he's gonna do no matter what. You thought, have you thought that before? He's sovereign, he's just gonna do whatever he wants to do. Now, that's an incomplete application of this attribute of God. That is not correct in this attribute of God. And see, then the enemy comes to us and says, if we misunderstand this attribute, he'll say, well, then why pray? If God's going to do whatever he's going to do anyway, why pray? What good does it do if he's sovereign and he's going to do it? Now, Matthew 6, 8 says this, the father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, We'll read that passage like this and we'll misinterpret it. And we'll think, well, the Father knows what you need so you don't have to ask. And we'll falsely reason, well, if he already knows and there's no reason to ask him because he's sovereign, he's gonna do whatever he wants to do. Now, I want you to listen carefully. The sovereignty of God does not mean that God is going to do whatever he wants to do no matter what. It does not mean that. And by the way, we'll also misinterpret the will of God. See, we'll say, if it's God's will, it'll happen. If it's God's will, it'll happen. There's no reason for me to pray. If it's God's will, it'll happen. And that'll shut us down in prayer. We'll just be like, no, it's his will. Whatever happens, happens. Que sera, sera. That's not his character. That's not his character. That's not a theologically correct statement. The definition of the word will, by the way, you also want to write this, you might want to just write this down so you remember. The definition of the word will in scripture is the word desire. The word desire. When you draw up a last will and testament, what you're actually saying, okay, is that I desire that my children get and split the remaining $15 of my estate when I die. That's my desire. You're stating what your will is, your desire, okay? So what is God's desire? What's God's will? Uh, 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slack concerning his people as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. Now watch this. Here's his will. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, when you understand that word will, what God's will is, you can understand this scripture. See, it's not God's desire. It's not his will that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Yes or no? That's right. Okay, now here's a simple question for you. Are all going to come to repentance? No. It's God's will, but not all are going to come to repentance. You follow me? See, God has a will but who else has a will? We have a will. We do. Why? 
because we were created in the image of God. We were created to be in a love relationship. And in order for us to be in a love relationship, there has to be will on our part to choose to love. Otherwise, it's not love at all. We're just puppets on a string in some big play. But that's not how he designed us. He designed us for love. He he has a will and we have a will. So the reason why some people perish is not God's will, but it's their will. See, that's the hard part. We don't want to swallow that. See, they exercise, people exercise their will to not accept Christ, and that's why people perish. It's not God's will that any should perish. See, so that's why when we say, well, if it's God's will, it's just going to happen. That's not correct. You can't say that. The God's will, God's desire is always good. His desire is always good. Jeremiah 29, 11, we know this passage. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They are plans for, what's the word? Good and not for disaster. I don't want to bring disaster on you. It's not the Lord's will to bring disaster on you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. God's will is good because his thoughts are good. He is good. God wants every person to come to Christ and he has provided a way for every person to come to Christ. He's provided an avenue for people to be saved, but he has also created us in his image with a will. Now, I want you to follow me. Keep following me. Do you remember when his disciples were asking them, Lord Jesus, teach us how to pray? Remember when he was teaching? And Jesus said, this is how you pray. And it goes, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. And he says, thy will be done on this little phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. Do you know what he's saying there when he says that? A lot of people don't think about what this means and dig into this theology. It's saying, let my desires here on earth be what you desire in he- for me in heaven. And when, I, when we pray, we'll pray in alignment and it will be done. Do you know that? Do you know what truth that we talk about a lot around here that this underscores? I mean, we talk about this a lot. It underscores the fact, the truth that God has a part and we have a part. God has a part and we have a part. God in his sovereignty wills or desires to cooperate with his people in prayer. Okay, in his sovereignty. Now, this might shock you, maybe. The breakthrough that you want to see from God is not going to happen if you don't cooperate with God through prayer. It's God's desire that you have a breakthrough in your marriage. It's God's desire that you excel, prosper, have hope and joy and a future. But we have to cooperate with God. The question is, are you going to exercise your will to be in alignment with his will to move God's will to earth? Have you ever prayed, if it's your will, God, save my neighbor? or save somebody. If it's your will, save my neighbor. Well, 
we already know God's will on that, don't we? What's his will on that? That they'd be saved. It's his will. So what needs to happen is, is that you need to get your will out of your recliner and partner with God and go across the street and talk to your neighbor. See, when we submit, when we're in communication and relationship with God, and we come in alignment with him, seeking his face and his will, and we begin to pray his will. See, that's a powerful alignment, how he chooses to partner with us. And his sovereignty, he designed it that way. We pray because he's sovereign. Now, I want you to flip over to Jeremiah 32. Now, you're not going to understand what we're going to read. Excuse me. But I'll explain it. Now, before I read this, you just need to know that there's nothing in Scripture that's idle for the believer today. I mean, there's nothing in Scripture that's idle. So when you read that obscure passage in Numbers or Habakkuk and you're like, what? Mm -mm. What does that mean? Just know God has something for you here. All right, so Jeremiah 32, uh, I'm gonna read something that God told Jeremiah to do that is an example of everything that we've been talking about, all right? Jeremiah chapter 32, starting in verse eight. Here we go. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, so this is Jeremiah's cousin, came to me in the court of the prison according to the word of the Lord and said to me, please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin. Look at this. For the right of inheritance is yours and the right of redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was, this was the word of the Lord. By the way, he knew it was a word from the Lord because God had already come to Jeremiah and said, oh, by the way, your cousin's gonna come and tell you to buy the field, so you buy the field. So God had already told that. So here we are. So he says, I knew it was from the Lord. Verse nine. So I bought the field from Hanamel, my cousin, the son of my uncle who was in Anathoth and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver, and I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and the custom, and that which was open. All right, now, you'd be like, now what does that even mean? What does that even mean? There are two very important things I want you to catch in this, in this passage. There are two rights that he talks about here. There's the legal right of inheritance, and there's the authoritative right of redemption, okay? The two rights, the right of inheritance, he says, you have the right of inheritance and you have the right of redemption. It's talking about the position legally and then it's talking about the position authoritatively. Then in this passage, there are two deeds. There's the sealed deed and the open deed, okay? So there's two rights and two deeds. So here's, here's how it works. Whomever held the sealed deed to the property, if you hold the sealed deed, held the legal rights to the land. You have, it's your legal right to the, own the land. And whoever owned 
the open deed held the authority over the land. All right, so I'll explain it. According to the customs, what likely has happened here is that Jeremiah's father passed away. Most likely he passed away. And then Jeremiah's uncle, because Jeremiah would not have been in a position to take on, to purchase, to take on the property. Jeremiah's uncle, so his father's brother, bought the land to probably support the family. Okay, that's that, and that was customary. So then um, Jeremiah's, un- uh, Jeremiah's uncle's son, so the cousin, comes to him and says, hey, I want you to buy this land back. The right of inheritance is yours. It's rightfully, legally yours. And the right of redemption is yours to do so. All right, now, here's what that means. If the uncle bought the field, he did so only from the right of redemption to help the family. He bought it, redeemed the, redeemed the property. He took authority and stewardship over that land, okay? But the legal right of inheritance didn't go to the uncle's son. The right of inheritance went to who? Jeremiah. Okay, you follow me? Because Jeremiah is the rightful inheritor of the land. Okay, now, Jeremiah also now had the right of redemption for this land if he wanted to purchase the land before the uncle passed away. Okay. So that's what he's saying. There are two rights. At this point of time, Jeremiah is positioned to have both rights, to have both rights. Now, so that's talking about the right of inheritance and the right of redemption. Okay. Then there are two deeds here. I need you to follow me as best you can. (laughs) There's the seal deed and the open deed. If a family owned the land, okay, so Jeremiah's family owned this land, they had the seal deed, and on that seal deed, the family's name was on it. It was on that seal deed. And no matter what happened, no matter what, the family always held the seal deed with their name on it, no matter what. Seal deed. The open deed, the open deed, I'll do that that way, was the deed that was used if the, if the land was traded or sold or bought or whatever it was done. So uh, Jeremiah's uncle would have gotten the open deed. Okay, he would have gotten the open deed. So if you transfer it, you can put somebody else's name on that. Okay, everybody follow me so far? Sealed deed stays in the family. Open deed's the one that goes around to different people. The different people that it goes around to, when they get that, see, it might legally belong to the family, but it's have uh, somebody with the open deed has the authority and the stewardship of the land. They're working the land themselves, okay? Now, let me explain to you why I've told you this. You're like, dang, why are you telling me this? I want you to hear me. God is the one who implemented this system. The the system of inheritance and redemption and open and sealed. It's his system of dominionship. He designed it before the foundations of of the world. So here's a question. All right, now, to whom does everything in scripture point to? 
To whom? Jesus and the cross. Everything in scripture, Old Testament, everything points to the person of Christ. Okay, all right, keep that in mind. Messianically, this passage in Jeremiah, this is deep, I want you to follow me. Messianically, this example in Jeremiah is a type and shadow of Jesus Christ. See, God gave the open deed in the beginning in Genesis. God gave the open deed to Adam and Eve. But because he's sovereign, he kept the sealed deed. When they sinned, Adam and Eve lost the open deed to whom? Satan. Do you remember when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness and he took him up on the mountain and he said, look at all the kingdoms of the world, they belong to me. And if you bow down and worship me, uh, then as in Matthew 4, 9, they were given to him by Adam and Eve, by the way. Did you notice, by the way, Jesus didn't say, "Uh uh-uh. He didn't argue with Satan because he knew it was true. But when Jesus went to the cross and exercised his divine sovereign will, something significant happened. You can tell it's going to get good. This is so cool. I want you to stay with me because I'm going to show you what happened. Revelation 5.1. Revelation 5.1 says, Then I saw a sealed scroll in the right hand. Remember the right hand, what does it represent? Power and authority, right? I saw a scroll sealed in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. Who's sitting on the throne? God, the father. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice. Who is worthy to break this seal and open the scroll? Who's able to do that? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders came to me and tapped me on the shoulder and said, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne has won the victory and he is worthy to open the scroll and it's seven seals. He's worthy. Now, what did he win? He won back the authority and dominion over the earth. That's what he won back. Jesus already has the right of inheritance. Everything is going back to him. He owns it all anyway. But because he went to the cross and paid for my sins and your sins, he not only has the right of inheritance, but at that moment he won. He defeated Satan, death, hell, and the grave so that he could stand before the Father as the perfect sacrifice and exercise the right of redemption. He had the right of inheritance always, but he won the right of redemption. But God didn't just, Jesus didn't want his inheritance back. He wanted you. And so he exercised his right of redemption to purchase you back, to make a way for us to become heirs to the inheritance when we receive Christ as our savior. Isn't that good? 
See, Jesus owns it all. He owns it all. After Jesus rose from the dead and before he ascended to the Father, he said to his disciples, Matthew 28, 18 says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. It's done. I own it all. Listen, when we get saved, listen to me. When we get saved, we become a part of a royal family and our names are written on the sealed family deed. That's our legal position as a believer in Christ. John 1.12 says, but to all who believe him and accept him, he gave the legal right to become children of God. Isn't that good? Lord, have mercy. And through Christ, then, we share the authority of the open deed. Our name's on the sealed deed because we're a part of the family, but we share authority with Jesus for the open deed. And this is where God partners with us in his sovereignty. Now, I want you to look. In Matthew 16, 19, he says, I will build my church and I will give you the keys to the kingdom so that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Listen, the binding and the loosing is referring to the authority given by Christ we have as believers to affect things every day through prayer. See, we have the authority to come together with God through prayer. And when we pray, we are choosing to exercise the authority, the deed that we have inherited through Christ. We're choosing to exercise that authority. And we pray in alignment to the supreme ruler of the universe who can do something about what we pray about, who can hear from heaven and forgive our sins and heal our lands. So the sovereignty of God is not a reason to not pray. It's every reason to pray. Does that make sense now? I'm glad y'all caught on. Here's the second reason. The immutability of God. The immutability of God. Now, <clears throat> mutable means change, mutate. Okay, it's the word mutate. And then immutable means, it literally means God cannot change. God cannot change. Malachi 3.6 says, I am the Lord, I do not change. James 1.17, if you need a New Testament reference, every good and perfect gift is from above and come down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows, so he never changes. Now, people misunderstand this doctrine, this characteristic of the Lord, and they say, well, if God never changes, then why pray? If it doesn't change, why pray? What this means is God never changes his character. Remember that. God never changes his character. It does not mean that God doesn't change his mind. We have instance after instance in scripture where God changed his mind, don't we? I want to give you two. Um, when people prayed, God changed his mind. There are two specifics. When Moses went to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, remember? And he was up there on the mountain and God saw what was going on down there. And he told Moses, he says, they've already, get off the mountain. I need you to get, get back down here. 
the people have already sinned and they've created these calves and they think that that's what, that's what got them here. And, and so um, I, I'm going to destroy them and I'm going to start over with you. That's what God told Moses. And Moses says to him, he prays, he said, oh God, please don't destroy them. Would you give them a second chance? Give them a second chance. In Exodus 32, 14, it says, so the Lord relented. If you're in, the, if you're in a King James version sword, it says he repented from the harm he said that he would do to his people. It says that God relented. It's the same word repented in the Old Testament 108 times, by the way. Okay. Uh, 41, 38% of the time it's translated repented. So it's that word used back and forth. Now, many would say that repent. See, we don't use that word. We don't think that it's, it's odd for us to use the phrase that God repented. Okay. Why? Because we think that uh, repentance means something that it really doesn't mean. It's the precursor to what we really think it means is what it means. So uh, many would say that repent means to turn from your sin. And I get that. I've said that. Repent needs to turn. If you turn away from something, you got to turn to somebody. If you've ever gone through faith witness training or any evangelism training, you probably use that word and probably just a little bit incorrect. But I've said it before, but here's the deal. Repentance is what causes us to turn from sin. Now, the Greek word for repent is metanoia. All right, so break that down, and it's meta means to change, like metamorphosis means to change. Noia means to mind, okay, to change your mind. Literally, repentance in Scripture means to change your mind. See, when we change our mind about sin, our sin, then we turn. We can't turn, we can't turn to the Lord unless we change our mind about our sin. So that has to come first. Repentance has to come first. Then we turn. So uh, let me give you another illustration. So we have Moses on the mountain. God changed his mind. Let me give you this. Remember when God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and he said, go preach for him for 40 days and tell him, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to destroy you. And remember, Jonah bucked the system. He was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Um. Was Nineveh destroyed? No. Do you want to know why? Because the people repented. The people changed their mind about their sin, and because they changed their mind, guess who changes his mind? God changed his mind. See, Jonah 3.10 says, then God saw their works and they turned from their evil ways, and then God, there's that word again, relented, and in some translations says repented, from the disaster, and he did not do it. He changed his mind. Jonah 4, 1, and this is what I love. Jonah's so real. We're, you know, he said, but it displeased Jonah. <laughs> He's like, and he says, was this not what I told you you'd do? I knew you'd do this, God. See, this is the reason I fled. This is the reason I told you no, because I know that you're gracious and merciful, God. And you'll repent, you'll change your mind from doing wrong. And I knew that if they were going to repent, that you'd change your mind. I knew you would. And they deserve your smackdown. See, here's what's great about this truth. An immutable God that can change his mind can never change his character. 
And that's why we should pray. Because God will always be merciful and gracious and kind and loving because he wants us to repent. He wants us to change our mind against sin. And he wants to change his mind about his judgment. And he wants to pour out his blessings on his people. Do you believe that if the people of God were to pray and to seek the face of God and turn from their wicked ways, then do you believe that God would hear us from heaven and that he would forgive our sins and heal our land? Do you believe that? Do you see that cooperation? God said in Ezekiel 22, 30s, he said, I sought for a man among them who would make up who would make up a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. So here's God looking for someone who'll stand in the gap for the people. Because he couldn't find anyone to agree with him, he could not find anyone that was praying against his destruction. He could not find anyone that even bothered to pray about the issue to stand in the gap for the people of God. He says, therefore, I poured out my indignation on them. Didn't want to, but I did because of their sin, because I'm a holy God. I consumed them with the fire of my wrath and I have recompensed their deed on their own heads. See, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I needed one believer to stand in agreement and cooperation with me. I just needed one person to join hands with me. And I wanted to be compassionate and I wanted to be merciful, but I could not find anyone who believed enough to even ask for it. So here's the question. What areas of your life does God want to join you to join hands with him? Your job, your health, your finances, your children, your marriage. Is there something that you haven't been praying about that you need to start praying about? Because you believed a lie or you misunderstood the characteristics of God. He's sovereign. He's going to do whatever he wants to. No. We know that's not true now. Well, he's immutable. He can't change. Well, no. He can change his mind. His character never changes. We have to understand the truth. When we understand the truth of the people of God, it changes everything. It changes how we view prayer. Have you believed lies and now you need to change your mind? and come into agreement with the Lord. And so the final question is, why not start now?